throughout American history, others have been telling Black women's stories. It's our turn. Their narrative is distorted. Ours is a voice for Black women to look back and talk back about the oftentimes disturbing, always poignant, unnerving accounts and effects of the intentional intergenerational wounding of Black women and girls. Welcome to the Black Girl Back Talk podcast, conversations on racial and gender bias from girlhood to womanhood. I'm your host, Laverne Baker-Hotep, with East Liberty Family Center and Kingsley Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'll be in conversation with extraordinary women from all walks of life who will look back and backtalk about tribulation and triumph and impart wisdom pearls that encourages us to claim our generational strengths, which continues to inspire, sustain, and propel us forward toward a future we're destined to create that promises parity, purpose, and healing right now. Let's look back and talk black. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Black Girl Back Talk, stories of racial bias from girlhood to womanhood. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Laverne Baker-Hotep, coming to you from the East Liberty Family Center at the Kingsley Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You cannot imagine how excited I am today, (laughs) and uh, you'll know why in a minute. I have the honor and privilege to be in conversation with someone whom I greatly admire and have often wished we could sit together and chat. Well, today's the day, and you, my dear listeners, get to sit with us. So here we go. Alice Walker is an internationally celebrated writer, poet, and activist whose books include seven novels, four collection of short stories, six children's books, including the recently published There Are Sweet People Everywhere, and volumes of essays and poetry. She won the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction in 1983 and the National Book Award for her exquisite novel, The Color Purple. Walker has written many bestsellers, among them, The Temple of My Familiar, Possessing the Secret of Joy, Warrior Marks, Female Genital Mutilation, and The Sexual Blinding of Women, and We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting For, Inner Light in a Time of Darkness. Her short story collections include, one of my favorites, In Love and Trouble, Stories of Black Women, You Can't Keep a Good Woman Down, and The Way Forward is with a broken heart. There are seven volumes of poems and In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Womanist Prose, which examines the creative inheritance of one's maternal line and how our own contributions, whether political, activist, or poetic, connect on this foundation. Her work has been translated into more than two dozen languages and her books have sold more than 15 million copies. Walker has been an activist all of her adult life and believes that 
learning to extend the range of our compassion is activity and work available to all. She is a staunch defender, not only of human rights, but of the rights of all living things. She is one of the world's most prolific writers, yet continues to travel the world to literally stand on the side of the poor, the economically, spiritually, and politically oppressed. She also stands, however, on the side of the revolutionaries, teachers, and leaders who seek change and transformation of the world. And there's so much more that we'll get to know about her, but I just want to say greetings, Miss Alice. <laughs> Hi, Miss LeBurn. <laughs> <laughs> Look how beautiful you are. Well, I'm reflecting you, of course. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying yes to my Black Girl Backtalk invitation. It's really so great to, to see you again. I'm sure you'll remember coming to Pittsburgh several years ago as a special guest of, uh, of our mutual friend, Donna Roberts, yes. to participate in the Pittsburgh screening of her film, Ye Manya, Wisdom from the African Heart of Brazil, which you narrated. And then during her visit, I provided a uh, numerological consultation, which after which you wrote a beautiful testimonial that appears on my website. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> and then we met again when Donna invited me to accompany her to a divine gathering at your home. And one of the things that I remember is walking on to your deck high up in the mountaintops. And I was immediately drawn to the swing. And you said, ah, you, I see you like a swing. Well, yes, ma'am, I do. <laughs> and I'm always drawn to a swing no matter where I am, because it reminds me of my childhood. So sitting on the porch, you know, with my grandmother and in a swing. So speaking of childhood, Miss Alice, talk to us about your childhood. Who was little Alice and what was she like? Well, little Alice loved to be loved by her older siblings. I had five brothers, all older. Now, two of them were terrorists, but three were, were not. Um, the older one was incredibly sweet and kind. Unfortunately, he had to leave home to save his life and go north. So we lost touch. I had one sister who loved to make clothing. So she used to make beautiful dresses for me, especially Easter dresses. And I had my parents and my grandparents and they were, you know, doting sometimes and not so doting other times, but overall quite loving uh, and always um, humble, very much church going people except for my grandfather, who was the renegade that I resemble. <laughs> so I'm always, you know, making sure that I bring him into the world, you know, along with, with me. So in what way was he a renegade and you are like him? Well, he wouldn't go to church. To him, I think, I think he, well, he was also something of a drunkard, which I'm not. But he had a real insight into the inequities uh, because we had, my family had inherited apparently some land, you know, after, during Reconstruction. And then 
when the reconstruction was destroyed, uh, the land was taken away. Where was this land? In Georgia. In Georgia. In middle Georgia, where I'm from. So I think he was quite, quite bitter. And also he had lost the love of his life, uh, he thought. Uh, I don't think the love was gone, but I do think the passion that, that he wrote it, you know, due to many years passing and, and both of them having different lives in different parts of the country. So he was a complicated soul. And many complicated souls, as you know, don't talk much. And that was how he was. <laughs> and so you talk about your your siblings and the one brother who had to run away to save his life. Well, yeah, really. Uh, he was 13. Can you imagine? Uh, and first he, he started working, building a road, helping the state build a road. And the road was being built by convicts. Uh, they wore those black and white striped uniforms. Now, the thing is about living in a community where you know a lot of the convicts, and a lot of them, of course, you don't know, but our parents were such evolved people that they taught us very early not to fear them. And one way they, they inculcated that lack of fear was to have us take them drinking water. So they would pull up, we had a spring, uh, and they would pull up the water, very delicious water. Unfortunately, people nowadays have no idea what real water is like. Mm. But they would give us this water in a, you know, in a pail, in a dipper, and they would say, take this out there and give it to the men on the, on the gang. And, wow. and I was really small. And I, that was part of my instruction. So little, little Alice with her bucket. <laughs> it's so Aquarian, too. You know, the symbol of Aquarians is that they are the, water. the water bearer. Yes. So I never, I never, you know, Laverne, I never th thought about that until now. And, and, and you're, you, of course, knowing all about, you know, these signs. But there I was, you know, and before me, my, my brothers and my sisters and, and the, the teaching, which I, you know, I understand now. And, you know, finally I understood was that we should not fear each other, no matter how rough we were looking. And that was a part of the same tradition we had of never passing by another black person without speaking and speaking uh, courteously. There was yeah. no thought that you would ever pass by a black person and not say howdy or hello or, you know, good morning, Miss so-and-so. You just wouldn't do that. You'd be just, nobody could even understand that. <laughs> so by the time I went to, went away to the North, and I would see a black person coming and, and I would smile and I would say good morning or hello or something and they wouldn't respond. And and I, I couldn't believe it. You know, it just seemed to me tragic, you know. Yes, that is really something that's quite amazing that has been passed down from us. Now I grew up in in western Pennsylvania, but in the country which was you would swear it was down south somewhere, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> And this very small town where everybody knew each other, like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And good Lord, there's no way you're not going to speak to people, and uh, especially Black people. And uh, if you went past an elder person and didn't speak, they're going to say something about that. They're going to call you on that, you know. And you're right that going further north, that that is something that happened all the time. There, there's still somewhere there's this acknowledgement you know in seeing black people sometimes you know it's a nod may not be a total hello 
you know, but it may be a nod or a look, or at least we look for that acknowledgement in each mm -hmm. other, you know, mm -hmm. no matter where we are. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I truly love yeah. about us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. So as a child, when you tell me about what you played as a child, what kind of games did you play as a girl? Well, first of all, we did, we had no toys. There was just no money for toys. And basically uh, you could make your own. Uh, so I never had a doll. And the good part of that was that I learned very soon uh, to really love babies. And I do to this very minute. I adore babies. So we made, you know, we made our, our horses out of sticks and our, you know, everything we had, we made. I can't remember all of the things we did, but it, when I look back now, I'm very happy about it because I cannot bear some of the toys that children have today that are just plastic and, you know, weird colors and no soul and nothing. I mean, there's no nature anywhere in them. Uh, so the child is, is basically sent off into a world that's, you know, unreal, unnatural. Well, that is amazing. So then you made things out of the natural, the natural elements around you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it did have it did have soul. It was a part of nature or. or oh, or yeah. Something. No, no. I mean, and I was, you know, I was lucky. Um, you know, I didn't realize how lucky I was, but I was the last one in my family to work in the cotton fields. And so when I was five or six, I had my little poison bucket, you know, to put, you know, you have to put. Did you know you have to poison cotton? Um, no. That's a very important step because that's how you get rid of the boll weevil. And how do you do that? Well, you put the poison in a, a bucket and you make, put water in there and then you have a little mop, a little, little twig with a little piece of cloth on the end. And, and no matter how big the field is, you have to mop every single plant uh, to kill the boll weevil. And that was my job until, lucky for me, cotton growing went out of fashion because they had destroyed the soil. The soil would no longer produce the cotton. Uh, sufficiently to make it worthwhile. My I know, isn't there something? I've never <laughs> heard of such. A, you know, it's uh, amazing what we don't know about what people experience during those times. My goodness gracious. Well, I mean, it's just, uh, that is something that you just don't even think about something like that, you know? Well, of course, no, you're not supposed to. I guess not. No. And, and, and it's, some of those things that the people didn't want to tell us, you know, I, I know that my grandmother was a sharecropper mm -hmm. and um, I used to ask all kinds of questions, you know, and she would, I remember her saying that she grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking that, you know, this little girl on a, on a horse, on a big field, just having fun, you know, just enjoying the wide open spaces and all of that. This is what I had in my mind about, her childhood mm -hmm. until I realized when she started telling me she had to leave school at, you know, in the third grade mm -hmm. and uh, go work in the tobacco field she did. Mm -hmm. And when I really realized what she was doing, you know, I realized that I had it all, I made up the story <laughs> and that she wouldn't talk about it and really say the horrors of it. You know, so they protected us a lot of times from that, didn't they? 
Yeah, but they also kept us ignorant. And I think that that too was okay because they they really were always trying to 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 shield us. And but but the thing is the image you received though was of the little white girl on the horse in the field. Exactly. And that has been very injurious to us because we're not the little white girl on the horse in the fields. And and they're yes. you know and they're 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 black children now with television, I mean, it's getting a tiny bit better, but they see themselves in those images, but they, they can't really act them out in real life. Right. That is so true. That is definitely the image. What else would I see? You know, what else would I have to, to, to vision that is so real. And your, and your little, your little hair would be bouncing along. Yes. Exactly. Flying behind me, you know, and that's, but, but they were, they were in, in a bind, our, our parents and grandparents to try to teach us, you know, as much as they could to love ourselves and to, you know, to to cherish each other. But it was, you know, they were in a terrible situation. Terrible. And the thing is that we now still have to tell our children horrific truths Mm-hmm. about our history, about what they are apt to endure mm-hmm. at this time in their lives. It's very painful mm-hmm. to have to tell them these horribles. Oh my goodness. It's horrible. And 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 yet uh it is our duty, I think. And and each of us will have to know our children and our grandchildren well enough to be able to speak to them, you know, truthfully uh and lovingly. And, and make an effort to prepare them for the reality that a lot of the beings that they encounter are not really human. Alice, can you say more about that? Well, they're obviously not. I mean, it, it's, it's just, you know, we, we now have reached the point where we talk about, you know, the lack of compassion and how, you, you know, everybody should have that and they don't have that. But really what has happened in America and in a lot of the world, and, and I have a, something on my blog about this because I was reading Mary Daly's book. I mean, Mary, Mary Trump's book. Mm. Uh, and I so admire her for her courage and her spirit. But what, you, what she's talking about is how many of our oppressor white people just have no memory of what they've done. And when you don't remember what you've done it destroys a part of your being. So it's almost as if uh, you cease to be human and you become demonic. And that is what we are up against. Wow. I, I, I feel that all in my, in my bones. And the deeper sadness of that is that there is no desire to remember, to recall. There is only a desire to hide it even more, to bury it. So that their children, their humanity is lost. Yes. And that just continues generation after generation. Well, but that's because if you don't have to remember, then you can enjoy everything you've stolen. Now, let's say the truth about that, because everything is stolen. And so, yes, you can only enjoy it if you don't if you don't remember, and if you don't let the people that you stole it from actually be a part of that, you know. I used to wonder why they kept us out of their neighborhoods. And I think I must have been maybe in my late teens when I ventured into one of the forbidden neighborhoods. And I realized that part of 
what was happening is that they didn't want us to see what they had taken. You know, it wasn't about us not knowing how to live in a nice neighborhood. It was about us not knowing what they had taken from us. That is so profound and such a sad truth. Mm -hmm. I often wonder about white children and uh, the fact that even even now, that, well, first of all, how their, their parents took them to lynchings, mm -hmm. like it was mm -hmm. a celebration mm -hmm. and had their children look up at Black people hanging from trees. Mm -hmm. And what does that do to the soul of a child? And then knowing that these are these children grow up to be, you know, those adults who do that kind of thing. It's just horrific to think about that. And well, <clears throat> but they're trying to make them that way. I mean, that's that's, that's what the they're doing. That. That's I mean, the that's, that's how they're teaching them uh, that these people don't matter, and these people. This is how you treat them. And then, in order for the child to continue to love the parent, the child has to accept that you know that the parent is like that, and therefore I must be like that in order to continue to love this parent. It's very deep. Our American trauma. It is so, so deep. Mm -hmm. So the fear that you're, can you imagine thinking that your child won't love you if they know the truth? Of but who? if they're there eating ice cream while they see you commit the atrocity, they won't tend to have a problem. You think. Some of them, of course, will. The poets, yes. budding poets and, 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 you know, great whatevers, they will, they will feel but many won't. I mean, their their memory will be that, yeah, we, you know, made this big basket of food and we had this wonderful ice cream. And my parents said, let's go, probably Papa, let's go because, you know, there's this entertainment that we're going to have tonight. And we go and sit there on our little blanket and they hang this person and then they burn him over a fire. And we sit and, and daddy passes out, you know, the custard and the cookies. And this is our, you know, this is what we, we think of as normal. It's a very, you know, one of the things that Mary Trump says, and I really recommend her book. The name of her book, this her book one. Is, is The Reckoning, The Reckoning. And she talks about how amazing it is that the Southern flag, the Confederate flag, mm -hmm. is not treated with the same degree of abhorrence as the swastika. And it should be. It absolutely should be. Mm -hmm. That's an but, amazing but you, observation. But you, but you see how how these symbols of absolute um, oppression and just barbarity are kept as something that you could actually stick up somewhere, and people are not supposed to, you know, be horrified. We we should be horrified. It's the swastika. It's the American swastika. So, when you were a girl. What was your first experience of racism? Do you, do you remember the first time you realized that, wait a minute, there's something not right here? I think, you know, I, I have a kind of a house fetish. I mean, I, I'm very concerned about, you know, people having housing. So this whole period we're in now is terrible for me because I toss and turn. But I realized that we lived in shacks. I mean, real shacks. And, and this was always true, no matter how many times they moved us around. Every time we would get the shack and the white people would be in the big house. 
you know, white always, you know, green shutters and roof and, you know, acres of pecans. And so I was, I was conscious of that because I wanted this for my mother. I wanted my mother, especially to have, you know, a beautiful house. And she was such an artist that she managed to turn our shacks into beauty. But I felt she shouldn't have had to do it, you know, after working all day for, for them. So that was my, I think, you know, it was subliminal. Yes, that is, that is so interesting because I had similar experience having grown up in a house that, you know, there were times when you could see through the, through the slats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and we had a coal stove and those kinds of things. And I, of course, noticing that when riding the school bus, that it was the white kids that had the better good houses, you know, Mm-hmm. And wanting that so much, wanting that there would be this a nice, warm house, you know, that didn't have um, soot from the coal stove, you know, yeah. my nose and on the walls that had to be cleaned off and that kind of thing. And yes, I was very, very aware of that. It just occurred to me as you are speaking about that, that that was probably one of the first ways that I started to realize that there's this huge difference, you know, even in the little small town, the, the, how did the white people man who worked in the coal mine with my grandfather manage to have a better house right? <laughs> than, than we, you know? Exactly. And I know he was working hard as anybody. Oh my goodness. As yeah. hard as anybody. Yeah. So, you know, we internalize this kind of trauma that we experience. And so when you think about ways that you may have internalized racism, how did it, how did it show up in your body? Do you know how it shows up in your body? Because we carry it, you know, we carry it around all the time. Well, there's that tension that you feel whenever you go out and encounter them, especially, you know, the few times we went to town and the, the feeling often that my father had to be so careful and so servile around the white people. A quality that fortunately my mother didn't seem to have. And so it was my mother who stood toe to toe with the the white man and told him that her children were going to school. So yes, I I think, you know, you, and, and actually though, one of the blessings was that we never lived very close to them. They were always, you know, on the other side of the road, way down the way. So you didn't really have to feel uh, that uptightness, except, you know, when you had to be closer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we actually lived, and this is really important. We lived connected to the land rather than to the other humans who were not like us. You know, we Mm -hmm. had our own community, but we were all basically in the rhythm of growing things, you know, noticing things. Uh, being very supported by nature. We could, my mother could grow anything and she could can anything and she was a goddess. And we all saw that, you know? Yes. All the other black women were pretty much the same, not as great as my mom, of course, but you know, I mean, they, they were doing fine. Yes. Yes. Uh, I recall just one of the favorite places for me to be 
besides the swing with my grandmother was in the garden with her and, uh, you know, learning how to grow food and uh, watching her pick beans and corn off of the stock and, you know, those kinds of things. And yes, being so connected to the land and going into the woods and mm-hmm. picking blackberries and mm-hmm. staying all day, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so that was the thing that really sustained us and was so foundational, you know. Mm-hmm. So you talked about school. You were going to say something. Well, I'm just thinking about how segregation was not the problem, really. Inequality was the problem. Yes. And this is something we should really make sure we understand, that you can be very just fine if you have what you need. You do not have to be sitting somewhere where people hate you. Ain't that the truth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think that that has been so painful for us. And we really misread that moment, that historical moment. Uh, In retrospect, I don't know what else we could have done because, you know, they were, they, as my friend Howard Zinn says, you have to say something, you can just say they, but they were not um, honorable enough to to let us have separation but equality, which is what we wanted, to be separate but equal. No, they wanted to be separate but have, you know, five-fifths, four-fifths of everything that could be got, you know, in in terms of money and land and prosperity. And we were supposed to be separate and equal with way less. Our schools were built out of very shoddy material. We didn't get all of the things that we might have gotten if they were really fair. And of course they had no intention of ever being fair. No intention ever. No. And so that applies to today. It's still a fact, yes, that there's no intention of being fair. No, they would rather use all of the funds and kill people with the funds, you know, here and everywhere, than give us what we, you know, have worked so hard all these centuries to to attain if we were going to attain anything, which they have prevented. So, you know, that's where we are now. And, And I, you know, I'm glad we're talking about this because I want the young people to really understand that we were not trying to integrate just because we wanted to be sitting next to them. We were not. That was not the idea. The idea was that we had to go and try to get the amount of whatever there was as an equal share, you know, for, for people of color. And the only way we could do it was by integrating, we thought. And boy, did that backfire in so many ways. You know, I mean, I, you know, some of those children who integrated, the, the first black um, children who integrated some of those white schools in the South, they died really early. I'm sure. You know, My goodness. And I, and I often think about what they, what they, what they endure. You can look at some of the photographs and here, here's this one lone black girl, for instance, surrounded by these hissing, really hissing people at her as she's trying to go to school. She's holding her books. She has to have the Marines or whoever they were guarding her to take her to school. You know, we, we have to, we, we are paying a price for what we did to those children. Can you say more about that? Paying a price for what we did to those children? Well, I think, you know, consciousness is really important for us to have. We have to really re-educate ourselves constantly. We have to really learn to know what it is we're actually doing. So, you know, I understand 
kind of belatedly, really, you know, what was going on there and how hard the, you know, Black people had tried to get what we needed without integration and how that had failed. But but it's it's worth really, really studying that period to understand what happened and how we could have done it differently and how we can do it differently in the future if there is a future. If there is a future? Yes, if there is a future. I mean, we, well, we assume... Well, no, let me put it this way. The earth has a future because, you know, I, she does, even though in some of the prophecies we learn that, you know, she has destroyed herself several times. That's what the, the, the big flood in the Bible is teaching, that that's just one of the times, you know, when she decided that she had it and she just flooded everybody out. But, you know, it, but we have to think in terms of that, you know, like if there is a future, what do we want it to be for us? I mean, for all people, but really, since we, you know, are, have been on this bottom rung for so long, what is it to be for us and what would we really like? And how do we prepare ourselves to live that? You know, is it to be lost in our phones, in our computers, in our I mean, some of the things, as we know, are wonderful, like talking to you right now is great. And I love seeing you and we send this out to all the people that we care about. But how much of this do we need? I mean, do we need 5G? I mean, what, what are the poisonous impacts of that? You know, what about the microchipping that is, you know, being developed? I mean, do we want to just be, again, slaves with our numbers on us uh, where they can track us? So I, I think what I always want to tell anyone, but especially people of color in this society, the best preparation is knowledge and, and studying to try to really understand what is happening to you. And we have really, you know, the, one of the most wonderful uh, things I've ever read was about the day that the black people were freed and got, and got the first schools and how they were so happy. They had been longing to, to learn to read. And they were just running to these classes, you know, just running, just as happy and, and you know, they were gonna learn. And, and that's what I wanna see in, in our children today. I want you to just really, because there, there's no greater compensation for anything than, than, than wisdom, than learning, than knowing. So talk more about what your vision is if there is a future, what do you see? What do you see and what is the contribution that we who are here right now on the planet, what is the contribution we should be making toward that future? Well, part of the future that they see, the bosses or leaders, I can't call them leaders, but you know, the whoever they are, they basically see the rest of us uh, in you know, disposable terms. So, you know, what is happening now, what is being planned now for our future is not something, you know, that would be dear to our hearts uh, because we have been seen so often as being, um, disp disp you know, dispendable. Is that a word? Anyway. Disposable. Dis disposable, mm -hmm. yes. So I think that, you know, our responsibility, again, is just to understand what, the plan is and how we can circumvent the plan, you know, how we can actually live human lives, not get caught up in the technology to the degree that we actually fall for the idea that it's okay to be robotic, that we can actually 
attach our brains to our computers or somebody's computer, and, and that will be fine. I mean, you know, there's a way in which often our young people are so indoctrinated that they can believe that giving up being a human being is okay. It's not, you know, as, as one human being who really understands the wonder that humanity is, you know, to be a human being is really precious. You don't want to be a robot. You know, you don't need to be a robot. You're just fine the way you are. And that's the beauty of what it means to live like this on this planet. This planet loves us as humans. Well, it's so true. And, you know, the fact that we haven't, we nor our children have had the opportunity to really live fully as humans, to really experience the fullness of that. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. No, talk about it just from the level of, of relaxing. It's very hard to relax in sculpture. Oh and goodness. I'm reading a book now called Inflamed, you know, by these two wonderful people who, who take you through it. You know, just what, it, what, what happens to our bodies and our minds and everything else, uh, just from the stress of living in a culture where you never relaxed. Where you just never rest. And you never rest. I mean, there's always this pressure. And then there's always the, the boomerang where you think you've gotten somewhere. You know, you, for instance, you know, you had a black president. Well, then you start to have lynchings again. And, you know, people, you, you know. So it, it is it is it's a, a reign of terror that we feel, you know, even if no matter how beautifully we manage to carry on or how, how beautiful is the 40 acres we might get. There is that always that level of tension. But I have to say, during this COVID period, I feel like this is one of the times that most other Americans have some inkling of what it's been like for us to live in this country for 400 years, where you never know when it's going to strike. You never know who it's going to take. You never don't, you know, I mean. You <laughs> wow, that's you, true. Isn't it? And that I mean, is so true. And you, you just never know. And we live with that. We have lived with that for all the hundreds of years we have been here. We have lived with that. With that deep uncertainty and so all then, the time. Exactly. And so we die from that. I mean, we, we sicken from that, you know, we, 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 and we die from that. And that's why there's disparities in, you know, when and where and how we die. Uh, because we're carrying this. You know, and we can, and and then being us because we are in in essence a really graceful people, we really endeavor to carry it with grace. It's really remarkable. I mean, I I fall in love with us more the older I get. <laughs> too, too. The, more, the more amazed I am. I, just, I look at us and I go, what? What? I'm just so amazed and in love with black people I i'll know. tell you it's my incredible. goodness gracious i know it's how do we and, and, mean? And, and it, well i don't know but you know is seeing black people as teachers of, of a certain kind of grace and a certain um you know spirituality you know a certain just just an essence you know i if for instance i just watched um king richard this ah movie. okay i haven't father, seen it yet father. Yeah, the father of Venus and Serena. Yes. And there they are. You know, I mean, you who who knew that you would actually get yourself, you know, out of the ghetto with people, you know, abusing you, your own people actually gone astray 
you know, by by playing tennis. But but this these parents, you know, with these six girls, you know, they they gave it all they had. Yes. And and that's so typical. I mean, it, yes. it is such a typical thing. Although not in tennis, because I don't really understand tennis, but you know, in other ways. Yes. You know, like the teacher who gives you the books to read, even though, you know, she knows that you know, you're going to have a hard struggle to go anywhere where they even believe you've read them. You yes. Know? Like, for yes. instance, my first paper at Spelman, when I went to Spelman, I wrote a paper about um, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, you know, comparing them. And nobody but my teacher believed I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. That's amazing. And that, and that story, August Wilson talks about that same thing happening to him and caused him to just leave high school and never go back, but go to the library instead, you know, exactly. and I've heard you talk about not even being allowed to go to the library mm-hmm. as a girl. I don't not- know where it was. Well, because it was in the white section of town where all the really super duper better houses were too, which I just, I went, they gave me an incredible, elaborate, beautiful celebration of my 75th birthday. And lo and behold, I walked into the library, which I'd never seen before, and they put up big pictures of my parents. And so I'm really into my folk down there now because they've had, you know, all these years when we've been struggling like crazy to bring some light to the subject of what has been happening. My goodness. Nothing. I remember going you're the library, the first library I went to as a, as a girl. And yes, it was in a community where there weren't many black people. And uh, I think it was just myself and the young girl that I went into the library with, we were the only two black people in there and just being amazed. I had never seen, of course, all those books, but just being amazed at what, why haven't I seen this before? Where did all this come from? And it was just a little, little library, one room, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, it wasn't something that we were privy to go to all the time, you know, or no. Yeah. That's really amazing. But, but there again, you can see how probably in your situation in Pennsylvania, somewhere, yes. mm-hmm. a lot of the, the people who had those libraries may not have had the history of, just how they have been kept from us, you know, and, and that's that's on really their ancestors who, who yes. should have been preparing them. Now, the the ones who, you know, were, were helping us on the Underground Railroad and, and so forth, they may have known, known, but for many of those people, and, and that's part of the what we have to look at in this country is very ignorant, you know, kind of everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and there needs to be a real focus on you know, resolving that ignorance and bringing people to some sort of common understanding of the country. And people are doing that. I mean, some people are really doing that. I mean, the tearing down of the flag, you know, here and there and the monuments and all of that and the, and the teach-ins. But a lot more of that has to go into creating what America really is as opposed to what, you know, some people would like it to be and to have been. Yes, and it is absolutely time for us to really know that and get to the truth of that for our children to know that. Because I I really believe that the children who are coming now are prepared to make this a new 
way of being, creating a new way of being in the world. I, I just feel that there's this, this great turning that is occurring now. And without the truth, and our children need to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And the more that the truth is being sought, it seems that there is, the other side is holding on for dear life of the lies and uh, not wanting those truths, you know, hiding even more. But this is a time where the truth on every level is coming to the surface. Absolutely. And there will be no hiding place, right? <laughs> we are the ones we've been waiting for. Absolutely, we Definitely. are. We are. Mm -hmm. And I am so glad to be uh, a part of the ushering in of that. And I am so thrilled that you have been and continue to be a, a contribution to this great turning that is occurring in the, in the world. And what you have, the gift that you, the gifts that you have given and just being who you are in the world has made a tremendous difference. And your, just your place on the planet is so needed right now in this time. And I just thank you for that and for the love that you have for our, for our people. Yeah. Well, I'm happily, you know, in love with us and in love with nature and, and generally speaking, actually quite happy. I mean, I, I, I can say that uh, having reached, you know, my age now, I'm 77 mm. uh, and feeling, I had an ancestor, by the way, who lived to be 125. So, you know, what? <laughs> I'm a teenager. <laughs> you are a teenager. <laughs> but, That's but, amazing. But the goodness of life, you know, whatever people are doing is just extraordinary. And that's the foundation for our joy. It's the goodness of life itself beyond all these crazy people and all the horrible things they do. Life is still amazing. It is a journey and we are so lucky. We are blessed to experience life on every day, the ups and downs, the beauty. You know, I, I, I saw two birds today, a, a jay bird and a red bird that just come staring at me today and I thought my goodness thank you what beauty is that you know exactly and so yeah it's the it's the all the things that there are to appreciate mm -hmm. it's, it's really wonderful and so if you were going to talk to little Alice today and you had a word for her a message for her what would that be enjoy life it's extraordinary, no matter what fears you may have growing up, you know, you know that there are places that are full of demons, but you can walk through them. And that on the other side of that is this understanding that you have been given an amazing gift to get here on this particular planet. Now, I don't know, I wonder sometimes about the other planets, and I have a feeling that maybe some of the, you know, trouble we have here is because some of those beings managed to get here and don't know how to act. But on this planet, as we, you know, Sweet Honey used to sing a song about how Earth was actually running away. She was trying to, the planet itself was trying to get away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are with her. 
mean, we are with her. We, we, we feel, we're feeling as one endangered being trying to get away from the people who are destructive of us. And we will, you know, and if we only get away in the moment when we understand our total inseparability and our total love, that's good too. Mm. Well, I loved it when you said, and we will. Mm-hmm. And I truly, truly believe that. Yes. I really do. And uh, I'm working toward that. And the name of my uh, company is called Well Woman, W-E-L-L, Women Empowered to Live Legacy. So what would you say, how would you describe a well woman? A well woman, you mean in all the ways that in we all can the, be well. In all the ways that we can be well. Mm-hmm. I would say, first of all, self-loving. And because I think that's the place where many of us uh, are trained, in a sense, not to put ourselves first as being uh, lovable and in need of love. But yes, I would say that. And I don't know, I feel like that would probably take care of most of the other areas, because once you do love yourself, you know, you, you see yourself reflected and, you know, back at you in a way. You know, I, I go around, you know, hugging and kissing trees and plants and my dog and uh, my cat when she was alive and feeling that is 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 Bob Marley saying, you know, one love. That's what he was saying. But you can't leave yourself out. And I think we have had that problem that we have felt like, you know, what was required of us, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's an indoctrination in a way. It's like, if you're in church and they always say, love God, well, fine, love whatever God you want to love, but don't forget you, you know? I mean, it's, it's all one it's all one being, it's all one thing. It's not separate. So to love whatever spiritual uh, image or dream that you have, you are there, you are in that. And you mustn't ever feel like you were just a servant to that, which is, I think, where some of our religions have led us astray. Well, loving self, you're right. Mm-hmm. I think it will take care of everything else. Mm-hmm. And the big self, you know, you love your little self and you love your big self, which is everything. We're not separate. We can only really, when we really get that, what a world, mm-hmm. what a world we will create for ourselves when we really understand that we really are all one. Yep. With everything. Everything. With everything. Miss mm-hmm. Alice, this has been <laughs> so delicious. <laughs> so delicious. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here with me today. I get I got to have a, a dream come true, and that is to sit and chat with Miss Alice Walker. And that's what I did today. Hallelujah. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black Girl Back Talk, conversations on racial bias from girlhood to womanhood. And thanks to our sponsors, Poise and FISA Foundations in Pittsburgh. If you enjoyed what you heard, share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the program on your favorite podcast player. If you have comments or want to tell me your story, 
you can email me at blackgirlbacktalk at gmail.com. Peace.